You're listening to the Sportsman's Empire Podcast Network brought to you by Full Sneak Gear. Check out their entire lineup at fullsneakgear.com. Also be sure to check out our entire stable of podcasts at sportsmansempire.com. New from Moultrie Mobile, the Feed Hub offers first-of-its-kind cellular connection and control for nearly any spin cast feeder on the market. When used with the Moultrie Mobile app, you can monitor feed and battery levels, run feeders on demand, receive alerts when feeders are clogged, and remotely adjust feeding times. The Feed Hub is ideal for anyone who maintains feeders. Remove the guesswork and save time by planning feeder maintenance before you drive to your hunting property. For more information, visit MoultrieMobile.com. You're listening to the Sportsman's Nation Podcast Network, powered by Interstate Batteries. From your truck to your trail camera, Interstate Batteries has you covered. Visit your local Interstate Battery store today or online at interstatebatteries.com. Interstate Batteries, outrageously dependable. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast, brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras, the number one podcast for bow hunting product information and hunting stories from across the nation. And now, here's your nine-fingered host, Dan Johnson. All right, here we go again. Welcome to the Nine Finger Chronicles podcast. My name is Dan Johnson. I'm the host with only nine fingers. That's just like the intro said. This podcast is brought to you by Exodus Trail Cameras. Now, I'll tell you what. I've been using Exodus Trail Cameras for three going three years now, I think it is. And I'm telling you right now, it is a badass set of trail cameras, right? Um, I have used the Exodus Lift 2 now for two years. I had the first version of the Lift that came out, you know, two years ago when the company started all of those trail cameras are working flawlessly and that's one thing that uh, as a as a bow hunter i rely on that information so if my trail camera is not performing um, then i'm not getting the data that i need to make decisions in the woods so that's why i love exodus man is because uh, their trail cameras work period so if you want to find out more about Exodus Trail Cameras, visit ExodusOutdoorGear.com. Check out all the specs on both the Lift and the Trek Trail Cameras. Um, you have a higher-end one, and then you have kind of a, a budget-friendly one. And then with the discount code 9FINGERS, that's the number 9, followed by the word FINGERS, you can receive $20 off a trail camera purchase. Now, that's something you need to take advantage of, especially this time of year, because we got to start patterning deer. You know, we got to find, you know, put together that hit list. And uh, that's what I'm going to be doing this weekend is I'm going to be checking my trail cameras that I have out soaking right now. See what bucks are back in the area, uh, seeing what uh, deer have made a return, seeing what deer are long gone, you know. And uh, basically just trying to get an idea of the caliber of bucks I'll be chasing this fall. And I'm going to do, be doing a little tree stand work as well. So uh, hopefully I can get a, uh, um, some trail, cam trail cameras switched up. I can get my uh, tree stand set up and uh, 
kick the weekend off. Of course, the cool spell in Iowa is coming to an end. And just like every single year, it looks like it's going to be hot, really hot when I go to do my trail cameras and, and tree stands in August. And it's just, it's a no win, but you got to do it because this is the only time that I have available until the second or third week of September. And by then it's, uh, you don't want, you kind of want to stay out of the timber because you don't want to be, uh, uh, screwing things up for the actual hunting season. So there's that. Now today's podcast, we're going to be talking with a gentleman named Nathan Grow, and Nathan is going to talk to us today about how he basically was a self-taught deer hunter. Um, his family, they were hardcore duck hunters and that kind of built the Uh, foundation I guess you would say for him for his love of the outdoors was in duck hunting and then he kind of transitioned over to deer hunting Uh, some really cool stories Um, not only the cool stories but kind of what he learned in that period of time where you teach yourself and he he basically goes into telling us you know stories about man he wishes he had uh, a mentor uh, in some of these situations where you know someone can tell you hey don't do that but because he didn't have a mentor he had to learn the hard way uh which if you ask me it's that's probably the best way to learn is the hard way because you always will remember that time that you screwed up so talking too much let's just get into today's basically it's a hunter profile podcast with Nathan Grow. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are back and on the phone with me today, Mr. Nathan Grow. How you doing, man? Not doing too bad. Uh, Illinois made the papers I saw with that, that white albino deer that's walking around in White County. So that was pretty fascinating to see. That's a, a buck, right? Uh, a buck too. Yeah, and he's definitely no slouch. He's he's nothing to stake a stick at so he's definitely catching everyone's attention that's for sure so do you happen to know the rule in illinois is uh can you shoot a fully albino deer it is illegal i there might be some other law in there i was reading up on it today that uh some counties that have cwd have an exception to that rule but I know for the, at least for the most part, you're not allowed to shoot them in Illinois and Wisconsin, I believe. Yeah. I think that's the same in Iowa. And I think how they justify it is if the nose is pink, then you, then it becomes illegal to shoot. So that's how they determine whether or not it's a full albino deer or not. So if you kill it, it's all white, but it's got a black nose, then that's cool. But I think it's the pink nose. But then again, I could be wrong, like I am most of the time. <laughs> so, but yeah, no, that sounds about right to me. Well, let me ask you this: Would you shoot uh, if it was legal? And um, let's just say your goal was a, you know, a four-year-old. This is all hypothetical, of course. If your goal was a four-year-old, something in the hundred and forty-inch uh, eight uh, antler size four-year-old 140 class and a two-year-old or three-year-old 120 inch fully albino deer came by and it was illegal to shoot would you shoot it oh man uh you know i i'd probably say no with the exception of if illinois ever had a velvet season he came by me in velvet i'd that'd be very hard to pass up i'll say that. that you make a good point there 
I don't, I don't know if I could. Uh, I, I guess right now, if it was the circumstances that I have, albino deer walks by, and I have, you know, my one tag, and he's, you know, smaller than everything else that I've been chasing, uh, but he's full, you know, full albino. I don't know if I'd shoot him. I don't, I, I guess I look at uh, an albino as being a genetic disorder. So it's for me, I look at it. If I look at it that way, it's not. It's rare, yes, but not. I don't know. I don't consider it really cool. Yeah, I know the same thing. Uh, I know the Native Americans kind of consider any albino animal kind of like a, a, sp- a spirit of the wild or the forest. And that, with it being that rare, if it walked by you, I, don't, I think I'd just be in too much awe to honestly to harvest that animal, to be honest with you. Yeah, yeah. Makes sense, man. Makes sense. Well, let's uh, start this podcast off like we always do. Where are you from and what do you do for a living? Uh, currently, I live in Cortland, Illinois, which is uh, about 20 minutes outside of the university, NIU, and I work for a conservation district. Uh, I'm an ecological restorationist, and I have a specialization in land management. Okay, so because I didn't understand a lot of those words that you just said, <laughs> what does you're uh, not the first? <laughs> what does a conservation restoration specialist do? So uh, basically what we do is we're taking land that has been degraded or left by the wayside and has a bunch of invasive species in it, and we're taking it and restoring it back to what it quote-unquote should be, which is, you know, when the pioneers were around. So a lot of it is turning things back into an open oak savanna, returning a lot of the native areas to floodplains and uh, prairies. Okay. So, I mean... uh a factory or something shut down several years ago. No one bought it. It, it turns into a pile of rubble. Do you guys go in, do the demolition and then restore it back? Is this uh, land that's purchased back to the state of Illinois or is it just the landowner says, Hey, I want to give, you know, I want to restore it back to its former glory. It can be both. Um, it doesn't so much do with, you know, the land that the factory would be built on, but, you know, most most buildings have surrounding land around it that's not being used for anything. So either the state or the county will buy up that land and restore it. And uh, there's also a bunch of programs with um, people donating their, their old farms or used land when they pass away, and the county will take that over kind of as a stewardship and restore it back to what it should be. Got ya. Gaia. So you, you in in your own way you're making the world a better place. I sure hope so. Uh <laughs> you go to you go to work and with all the invasive species that are out there sometimes it feels like you're treading water but you got to give it your best go and hey you get to play with fire during uh fall and spring so that's nothing to complain about. <laughs> your uh, inner teenager comes out to say hello every now and then. Oh, it's the best part of the job, I can tell you that. I, I turn into a little schoolgirl when I hear we're burning in the morning. So let's talk about that just for a second because, uh, you know, this is, you know, we do talk about habitat every once in a while. Is the goal, is there like a main goal if, you know, it's just this empty lot with overgrown weeds? What, obviously you spray and burn, but what are some of the other things that you do to get it back to its original state? Uh, spraying and burning are big parts of it. 
Uh, it depends on what other invasive species there are. Like if it's a bunch of woody invasive, sometimes we'll have to take like a fecon or a mulcher header and just go in and mow down all those invasives. Sometimes it's, you know, select timber clearing. Other times you, you have to hit the reset button where you have to herbicide the whole thing and seed it and start from scratch. Or you get you can get lucky sometimes with old ag fields, and those turn into some of the best prairies because they've been sprayed for years and years and years. And you can come in, throw seed down, and they take off really well. But mainly what a lot of the districts are after is trying to find those areas that have just kind of been left over, and they're called remnant areas. So they still have that native seed bank in there. So you can either try and spray off some of the invasive species like brome grass or reed canary grass, and that seed bank will come back. Um, or there's a bunch of other things you can do, but that remnant it takes a high priority in the district size. Okay. And you said it, it, so there's times it feels like you're treading water. Are those invasive species, I mean, difficult to control? Oh, man. They're... Uh, Depending on the invasive species, they can be really hard to control because the reason they're invasive is because they grow really well here and they put off a lot of seed and are very capable of growing in multiple areas. So you can attack it in one area and say, you know, this year we had a lot of rain, so everything flooded out and the reed canary grass seed floats. And so all that stuff you've been working on for years then gets reseeded with all the with all the bad stuff and you're just like oh god i i just spent four years trying to fix that yeah yeah absolutely um th now what about uh i don't know is there is there does the united states have any invasive species like animals or birds <laughs> i mean like sewer rats that you try to get rid of or anything like that like trapping or or killing animals uh, not so much. I sh I'm sure everyone knows about the carp and the Asian carp specifically. That's one of the things that we do try and manage because if they get into our wetlands, the problem with carp is they root around in the mud and they, you know, they uproot all your good plants and turn everything into a muddy slurry mess that your natives can't grow in. So that is one of the uh, animals that is on our list. But as far as removing them, uh, that's not really that's not our area of expertise too much gotcha so you're just basically dirt and plants pretty much as, as dull as that sounds it can be exciting yeah no absolutely all right so so then once you get that you know piece of property back to its original state then is there uh, an annual maintenance upkeep on there as well or is that just a you know, just because the property that you fix is now clear doesn't mean that the property next to it is clear. And then, you know, seed drift and all that other stuff can you know, oh, yeah. take over again. So is this an annual thing or do you have a maintenance program that you run as well? Definitely. You definitely have to keep an eye on the, you know, the land that you're taking care of. So like you said, seeds have a way of finding their way in and if you're not paying attention, they can take over in a hurry. Uh, the higher quality that you can make an area, though, the harder it is for the invasives to come in. So the one good thing about the natives is that they take up every layer of that, of the soil. So the more diversity and the more plants that you have in there, the less room there is for the invasives to find a spot in that soil structure. So they right. can slowly start to become a little self-maintaining, but you still have to keep an eye on them. 
Mm, that's very interesting. I like uh, I like that kind of thing. Now, what about? Uh, let's see here. Why don't you tell us some of the most prominent invasive species? Let's say that uh, someone like me who really doesn't know crap about plants uh, would maybe recognize. Uh, well, on your deer property, it's probably going to be bush honeysuckle, uh, for sure. It's going to be in just about everyone's woodland. And if it's not there now, I can guarantee it's, it's on its way. It is widespread and the birds love it. So they, they eat the berries and they, (laughs) they carry it from farm to farm to field to field. And it, it grows quick and it grows thick and tall. That's uh, Um, got thorns on it, right? Thorns would be probably um, multiflora rose, but that okay. I guarantee is also on everyone's farm. Right, right. Now, is that true, multiflora rose? I heard that it was introduced in the United States, and they planted it kind of in rows to where it it was a border for cattle. It, it, they were trying to use it instead of fences. That, along with um, Osage Orange, for a long time has kind of been used to mark uh, old property lines, but I I'd hopefully won't make too many people angry, but a lot of the invasive species were brought over here as habitat. When our habitat was starting to decline, the original thinking was to create habitat for the animals, and we didn't think far enough ahead that it could become a problem, so you're your plants like honeysuckle, multiflora rose were planted as habitat and brought here, and then they just quickly turned over and started pushing everything else out. Gotcha. Because so, I, I was down in Georgia. I, uh, I worked in Atlanta for a while, and when you drive around, I guess down there throughout the south, they have a, um, oh man, it's a vine. And it grows so fast. It, it kudzu. I, I'm not. I don't. I don't know the name of it. I know, and but it suffocates the trees because it blocks all the sunlight of the tree. Then the tree ends up dying. Yeah, that sounds sounds like either kudzu or we have a different version. Of, kudzu's on its way up here, but we have a different version of it called porcelain vine or bittersweet. Those are also they choke trees out pretty much. Yeah, and then the other one that I can think of is when I was down in New Orleans um, a, a while ago. They use they they planted this water plant to stop help try to help stop erosion as a buffer uh, between like I guess wake or tides and the ground, but what it did is it grew so fast it blocked the waterways. So now they are having trouble trying to get barges uh, from you know barges and boats up into the Mississippi River from the gulf because that uh, the swamp the louisiana swamp down there grows it so fast they have trouble you know they gotta spray it and and try to kill it uh and i don't know what that invasive species called either but those are the two that i can think of right off the top of my head yeah i wonder if that i don't know too much about that but i wonder if it's either the phragmites which we have up here which grows up to 20 feet tall i've also heard of pompous grass that they've had problems with in the south that taken over their waterways but i don't know too much about down south yeah i'm sure someone who listens to this podcast will let me know people keep me pretty honest on this podcast it's kind of cool it's like oh, I, have, I bet <laughs> I, have, I have my i have my fact checkers i swear there's probably some people out there right now just on their keyboards listening to this podcast going okay nope he's wrong i got to let him know <laughs> then they'll make a post calling me out on my own uh social media pages which dude it's cool so 
I'm telling you, that's why I had to get rid of my social media pages. I had people spell checking my, my statuses, and I just couldn't handle it anymore. <laughs> your and your, you know, if, if you're in a hurry. and Oh, know, God, and it's driving like, me up a wall. Hey, I'm no, I'm no English major, but don't you mean this? And I'm just like, oh, Jesus, man, I want to I wanna be able yeah. to get rid of you really easy, but instead I'll take the higher route and uh well, change it <laughs> it's like do you do you yeah it's like do you realize i'm I'm typing this on my phone i didn't know that facebook all of a sudden all of a sudden turned into a learning institution where everything had to be grammatically correct right and i have nine fingers so it's i'm just gonna say it's 10 percent harder <laughs> <laughs> it's 10 percent harder for me to do that than everybody else well there you go you got an out <laughs> that, at least that's what i'm going for that's my excuse. Hey, it worked. It worked for me. All right. So, but okay. So finally, we're going to get into what we're you know the podcast here, the main. Yeah, if, topic. We, if we still have any listeners by now, <laughs> absolutely. So here's the deal. I get this message from you, Dan. Blah 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 blah. Uh, I, you know, I like your podcast. Uh, what else does it say here? Uh, wanted to touch base with you about the good, the bad, and the ugly in the past seven to 10 years of your, I guess what I'll call it is a quote unquote hunting career. And what you're telling me in this message is that you are a self-taught hunter. You had no mentors getting into it. And that's what I want to talk about today. So I, what I want to do is I want to go all the way back and I want to ask you this one question first, and that's going to probably spark a whole bunch of different questions, but how old were you? when you decided you wanted to start hunting? Well, I, I had been a duck hunter damn near all my life. Uh, I had started that probably as, well, I've been going out earlier than when I could hold a gun. You know, <laughs> my dad would sit me down in the corner of a duck blind at three, four years old and give me a game boy to keep my, keep my attention occupied. <laughs> you know, we're not the most <laughs> attentive people at that age, but uh, when I started getting interested in deer hunting, probably around my senior year of high school, uh, so it had been around 2008, and uh, one of my friends that I actually went to high school with, he would always talk about the shotgun deer hunting trip that he would always go up with his family to Minnesota, and just hearing the stories that he would tell me about deer camp and <clears throat> how fun it was and what they did, I was like, man, you know, that that just sounds like a whole bunch of fun. You're telling me that I can go up somewhere, hang out with a bunch of guys, go hunt all day, come back, hang out with them, and repeat that the next day. I'm in. I got to figure <laughs> out a way to do this. So, you started deer hunting somewhere around your senior year in high school. Yep, uh, 2009 was my first deer trip. I got to go up with that buddy. I missed out on the senior year because I asked too late, unfortunately. Yeah. So the following year. All right. So duck hunting, right? I mean, you were exposed to duck hunting at an early age, sounded like it was something your old man really liked to do. Did you have any other family members at all that did any type of hunting outside of duck hunting or was it like just strictly duck hunting? My dad's side of the family was strictly duck hunters um, for Oh, about 10 years, we were part of a pheasant club that leased up land that we could pheasant hunt on. Um, but for the most part, it was just mainly mainly ducks and pheasant. 
Okay. So mainly ducks and pheasants. So up kind of bird hunting. Now, what about um, fishing? Did you guys go fishing at all? Oh, yeah. Uh, my grandparents at the time had a house on the lake and we would go out, you know, every day and uh, every day that we could when my dad wasn't working. And on the days that he would be, because my dad's a printer and he would work the night shift. And so he would get off early at four or five o'clock and he'd be tired, probably too tired to take me fishing, but he'd wake me up in the morning after a rainstorm and we'd go catch worms so he could fish the next day. Oh, nice. So there was somewhat of a foundation there for that, like the love of the outdoors, right? I mean, it sounds like you, you did some duck hunting, you did some fishing. Um, now would you consider your dad and your dad's side of the family, quote unquote, hardcore when it came to duck hunting? Uh, I would consider my uncle, his brother, extremely hardcore. Um, his brother would, you know, wake up, go to work, get off work, go duck hunting, sleep for three hours, go back to work. Uh, my dad was more of a fair, I don't want to say fair weather because he was definitely out there in the elements, but it wasn't, you know, at the forefront of his mind. If he didn't go out during the season, it wasn't that big of a deal. He liked getting out, but it wasn't a priority for him. Gotcha. Okay. But as you kind of grew up duck hunting, uh, did you ever uh, do those kind of duck hunting trips where you would sit in the rain or the ice all day long and freeze your balls off and, you know, sit in the duck blind and, you know, shiver, uh, you know, maybe with some wet feet, like with some other guys, or were you kind of following along in your, dad's footsteps and just kind of fair weathered it it as well oh no i for whatever stupid reason i went out and would be in the rain with them in the cold and i i absolutely hate getting wet even now as a duck hunter (laughs) if it's raining more than a drizzle all my friends know don't give me a phone call i'm not going out but for whatever reason that punishment and the work that you had to go through to get to your goal to even have a chance at harvesting a bird. I just fell in love with it. And the harder it became, the more I wanted to do it. Right. Okay. So now we're transitioning over to deer hunting and you started going up, you know, you started going up with these, this group of guys to quote unquote deer camp. Now, as you started hunting, did any of those guys give you tips and tricks and show you the ropes or was it just a, <laughs> kind of a, Hey, let's drink as much beer as possible. And then tomorrow morning you're going to sit here. Well, my first trip up there, I had no clue what was going on. So I Googled things that were what you should do for deer hunting. If you can believe <laughs> that. And <laughs> I wonder, my, my weapon, <laughs> I wonder what would happen today. And I'm going to do this after we get off the podcast. Google how to deer hunt. Oh my God. It was, (laughs) I think I went into overload with all the information I had and then all the contradictory things you should sit here. And then you go to the next place. Don't sit there, sit here. And Oh, it was just an overload. And I basically got almost nothing out of that search. Uh, lucky enough, I did have a deer gun. It was an old duck gun that I was able to put a, slug barrel on but we went out in the morning and one of the guys took me to a spot on the side of a ridge and said all right this is where you're at i'll be back at noon to see if you shot anything and i sit down and i have no clue what i'm doing i'm in all of my pheasant gear 
I hadn't scent treated anything. I have a pheasant jacket on because you have to have blaze orange. I was <laughs> I was sitting on the ground in the mud, had no clue what I was doing, <laughs> just hoping a deer walked by me. And were you ready? I mean, I wish did, I could. Did you practice at all before that first trip? I think I maybe. Well, <laughs> I think I maybe put one round through that gun to find out how much it kicked. But the extent of my practice. <laughs> Was sighting, was sighting in my scope with a laser and being like, yep, I think that's close enough. That sounds like me when I first got my bow. Uh, my grandpa gave me a bale of hay, and at about 10 yards, I think like five, three of my five arrows hit it, and I'm just like, oh, man, I'm a killer now. Like, <laughs> I t- I t- <laughs> you know, just I'm going to dominate the woods, go out there. I got this. <laughs> yeah, I, I'd hate to be a big buck walking by my tree stand. Well, ironically, that's what happened to me on that first trip. I hadn't been sitting there for more of an hour, and when they when they sat me down, they said, "All right, just watch in front of you. That's where the deer are going to come from." And of course, they came from behind me and ran across my shoulders up the other side of this ridge. And you know, I was three does pulled up, put my scope on her, pulled deer dropped and rolled down the hill, and I was like. I don't understand what people are talking about. This deer hunting stuff is easy. <laughs> like, I haven't been here an hour, and I already got one. What, what is everyone talking about? I love it. So you probably were you probably were like tap dancing back into the camp, right? Like, hey, guys, I don't want to – I don't – Well, I'm, Maybe I'm not a natural, but I'm kind of natural. <laughs> well, unfortunately, my tap dancing lasted for about 30 seconds. That's one of the things I was going to bring up is – I hadn't been told, like, hey, give this deer some time to expire to make sure it's dead. I shot it. It dropped rolled down the hill. In my mind, I've just harvested a deer. I'm the biggest, baddest guy in the area. I'm going to go over and get this. I took about five steps down the hill, and I'm sure that my shot wasn't as true as what it was because she hopped up, looked at me, took off, never saw her again. (laughs) So now every year I get to hear about that story at deer camp. And that was seven years ago or ten years ago. Oh, it's terrible. And the worst part is we keep records so we can keep track of what areas work out for us. And every year I have to hear about how, oh, this year to date, Nathan shot 12.5 deer. <laughs> so they in that journal that they keep, it's like uh, here on this ridge, uh, you shot a, a deer was shot. But because he had no clue what he was doing, he got up <laughs> and he spooked the deer out of its, you know, before it could die and it ran away <laughs> every year is the same thing just hey if you shoot something this year make sure it's dead we don't need to have a repeat so other, okay so, thanks for the encouragement yeah, guys right so other than give you shit did any of these guys that you went with maybe kind of walk you through like maybe what the do's and don'ts of deer hunting I mean, did you ask them questions or did you kind of feel dumb and like, well, I don't want to ask questions, you know? Unfortunately at that age, you know, you, you want to seem like, you know, what you're doing, you don't want to be that odd man out. So I wasn't asking as many questions as I should have been, uh, you know, just probably because of the ego and, you know, you just want, you just want to feel cool. You want to feel part of the group. You don't want to be that guy that's tugging on everyone's pant leg being like, Hey, I don't know what I'm doing. Can I ask you a question? Uh, about the only thing I got any tips on was how to uh, field dress a deer if or slash when I was able to recover one. Gotcha. Okay. All right. So 
how many years did you go up with that crew or is that something that you still do every year? Every year it's an annual trip for us. Okay. All right. So now 2009, you started going out uh, with this, uh, with this crew. Did, you know, and that, well, how many days was that? We usually go up and hunt for two days because, you know, all of us have, have jobs, so we take half days on Friday and Monday, so we'll hunt Saturday and Sunday and come back. Okay. So then with that said, I mean, obviously you're hunting more now than just two days a year. Did you, I mean, how did that, what was that next step for you? How did you evolve from just going up with a crew, uh, with your crew, to going out on your own really saying hey i like this but i need to learn more oh man um i would probably say to be honest it was i didn't really start bow hunting for quite a few years I, you know because i was sticking to the safety net of shotgun hunting and i'd say after i harvested my first buck which i ironically i had shot a doe earlier in the morning and i had remembered what happened to me the first time i went and i was i'm not moving i'm sitting right here for the next hour to make sure that deer has time to expire and in that time i was sitting there a nice eight point had walked by and i was able to harvest that deer and from that moment uh, that's when it ignited in me so, so i started looking into you shot a big go ahead. you shot you, you shot your first buck then yep Okay. And I, I, that's definitely when it ignited uh, something in me. It's like, I got to find a way to make this season last longer so I can do this more times out of the year. Give me some details on that. What was it about that experience that, that you feel ignited started something? Uh, well, I mean, I can remember every single detail from that day uh, just walking in and I, I sat down on a log on a ravine on places that I, I you know, the limited knowledge that I had, I felt like would be a good spot. Cause I had been trying to do more and more research to try and educate myself. And I knew that during the rut, you need to be somewhere around a bedding area. Cause that's where bucks will be cruising. I still didn't know too much about wind direction, but I knew that I had to be around a bedding area. And so the years leading up to that, I was still making all kinds of mistakes that were really, really frustrating and just slowly started to build to that moment. And when I was able to, harvest that deer and walking up on it, following the blood trail and walking up on it. And just the flood of emotions that come with it. Cause you work so hard to try and figure it out. And when that all comes together, it is one of the biggest adrenaline rushes and dopamine dumps in the world. And it really is a powerful feeling to walk up on this animal that, you know, has your number every shape and way that they can smell you if they want to. They're extremely cagey animals. And so to be able to outsmart that animal for something that you've been working so hard to do, it just has a weird way of just hooking you. Yeah, dude, that's awesome. So now what I want to know is, you know, from 2009 and when did you shoot that buck? Oh, geez. I want to say that was around 2011, 2012. Okay. So you mentioned you were, you were taking extra, you know, additional steps to try to learn more. What were some of those additional steps and what were some of the things that you learned in that, you know, that uh, three or four year period um, that were, you know, that may have helped you out in the timber. Like when you said, Hey, I gotta, I gotta sit next to a bedding area. Well, you can read that. 
and maybe even mm-hmm. watch a video on it. But unless you know how to actually identify it, that's something completely different. So how did you how did you connect all that information? I'll be honest, uh, with that bedding area, I just, I didn't know how to ID one. I just knew that deer liked grass and I had found an area that grass had been in that I had, that we had habitually kicked deer out of. So that used to be our access point. And so the one time I went in there, I'm going to go a different way to get in there. Cause I always see deer here. The, the, there has to be a reason that they're coming here. Uh, but as far as like research go, a lot of it was online. Uh, at that time I had started to run into more hunters. So I was able to start picking their brain. I was a little bit older, a little more mature and secure with myself. So I didn't feel, you know, I didn't feel like that little kid that was bothering everyone anymore. It was more about, you know, I need to start growing my knowledge. I, I need to start being a better hunter overall. So I started reading a lot of magazines, a lot of books, um, started going online, joined a lot of online forums just to kind of see what everyone was talking about. And I learned a lot from in-field observation. You know, I, I see deer coming out of this area. Okay. Well, I'm, I'm going to go over here and see if I can't find their beds or see if I can't find a scrape or something. And I just started trying to learn more about them and how that was connecting with what I was seeing in the field. Okay. All right. So in that same amount of time from what you've learned, was there anything that was learned in the woods through failure that kind of stuck with you? Oh, geez. Uh, A lot of things. Um, Probably. Well, I'll go to one that taught me really bad this year, ironically, because, you know, every year is a learning process. That's for sure. And, uh, I was after this one deer this year that just wrecked both of my seasons, my deer hunting season and my duck hunting season. He took me to school because leading up to this year, I, I felt like I had finally had a good handle on things and he taught me how little I knew. Um, he taught me that number one, you cannot rely on trail cameras as your live by die by scouting information. He also taught me not to overthink things because if you see a deer coming down a trail one day and you move your stand to that spot and they come down a different trail the other day and you go, well, I, I was just up there. Why, why did I move that spot and you move back? It's not that that deer is avoiding you. It might've been something like as simple as a coyote came down that trail. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, as you start to progress, right, you start learning these things. Did, you know, learning one thing is great, right? You can go into the woods, you can make, you can fail, you can learn something. You can read a magazine article, or uh, you know, or a buddy will tell you something. You can learn another thing. But I think as hunters, it's a culmination of all these things that kind of ter- like change the way not necessarily how we do one thing, but it approach an entire thing, if that makes sense. Yep, definitely. So, so how did you put, like, how have you been putting all the pieces of the puzzle together over these past 10 years to, I guess, refine, change your hunting, I guess, strategy? Uh, I'd say a lot of it is probably from just 
you know, your successes and your failures. Uh, one thing I'm going to try and do this year, cause I really think it'll help out is trying to keep a hunting journal just as the things that you can look back on. Um, cause your the greatest things are going to teach you are your failures as, as horrible as they are to go through, you will learn nothing quicker and nothing is more valuable than a failure. Cause they can show you what you, everything you've done wrong and the few things that you've done right. And right. so trying to keep track of those, I think, is probably one of the more beneficial things you can do. Yeah, absolutely. Now, let's talk archery, okay? So you said, you know, you shot your first buck with a shotgun. That ignited something. Talk to me a little bit about this transition that, you know, from, hey, I shot this buck. It, it, it lit a fire in me. I want to prolong my season and, and hunt as much as humanly possible. Is that when the conversation turned to bow hunting? Yeah, uh, definitely. One of my friends, I had started talking to him more about, you know, this deer, I love deer hunting. And I'm, I'm thinking about trying to start out archery hunting. He goes, oh, well, how much have you thought about it? And I said, what do you mean? He goes, it's, it's an investment. It is time consuming and you're going to become addicted to it. So, well, yeah, I'd really like to give it a shot. And he goes, okay, wait here. And he walks into his garage and he brings me out an old bow and goes, here, if you're, if you're really into it, I'll give you this bow and you can, it's all yours. And just that gesture from a fellow hunter was incredible. And starting to shoot a bow in the backyard, if no one's done it, even if you're not a hunter, I encourage people to do it because it is one of the most tranquil, stress relieving things you can do it's just everything else in your world kind of disappears and all you're thinking about is that bow your arrow and where you want to put it and it just it's an absolutely liberating thing and when you couple that with hunting it's just a magical experience yeah absolutely man you know i i don't think i would ever like me personally like bow hunting changed my life from not necessarily an archery standpoint, like, like what you just said, but from a getting out in nature. So like, yes, shooting my bow helps me do what you just said, but it's along with bow hunting that changed my life and made me want to do that every single day of the year. If I possibly could, you know what I mean? Right. Can you recall that? that moment of where you're where like click for you oh dude and changed everything dude i can i can tell you exactly when it was it was in 2006 it was a october hunt i think it's somewhere right in the middle and it was one of those october days where you could wear a sweatshirt the entire day and not get hot right so it was cool but sunny. Uh, yeah you know what i mean you know what i mean um, yep. If you put on a jacket, you would have been hot. But if you took off your hooded sweatshirt, you would have been cold. And it was one of those days, and I remember walking up to, and it was an old ladder stand, walking up in the stand, and uh, it was, as the sun sets, you know, and the all the trees are in full color, right? And mm-hmm. the sun's shining through there, and it was just this vibe I got from nature watching you know, watching some deer in the distance walk by. And I'm just like, this is amazing. Like I'm going to do this every day. And it really wasn't about the animal at that point. It was about getting out and just experiencing nature. 
and, you know, slowing down and, you know, watching this bird that I had never seen before or watching the way squirrels run around or, you know, or watching, you know, as a majority of the animals go to bed, listening to the other half of the animals wake up, if that makes sense. And Oh, yeah. Yeah, and it and I don't know, man. It, it, it was that exact day that went boom. And I was like, oh, right. boy, this is awesome. And I want to do this as much as I possibly can. So, But kind of like you, although I wasn't serious, because I bow hunted and, and hunted before that, I went away from it. And then I came back to it. I mean, I had a foundation of love for the outdoors. My dad took me camping and hiking and all that stuff. But it it was that moment right there that kind of solidified my path in life. Right. Well, it's interesting you say that because I've had people ask me, like, you know, what? Why do you go out and bow hunt? What's so special? What's What's one of your favorite memories? And it's not any harvest of a deer. It's when I was in a tree stand and I had my bow hung up and I had a songbird land on the tip of my arrow and just sit there yeah. for a half hour. And there, that is just that's unfortunately that's something that a lot not a lot of people get to experience. But it's it's just incredible being that close and in that in tune with nature. I mean, unfortunately, it'll make you hate squirrels as they're coming through the forest. But <laughs> other funny. than that, let's let's talk about that a second. I know what are, what are some of your biggest memories that are not, I guess, not necessarily harvest based. Like I killed this deer; it was an awesome memory. But while you're sitting in a tr- tree stand, I you know, elaborate a little bit on that story. Tell us some more stories about memories that you've had while in the tree stand. Oh, geez. Uh, well, we'll go, we'll go, we'll go with a good one first. Uh, we'll expand on that bird story. It was, uh, I want to say it was either the second or the third year I had been bow hunting and I was on one of my friends from college. I was on his farm and he, he put me in a stand and kind of on a small ravine with a cornfield behind me. And I hadn't seen a thing all day. And I was thinking about doing possibly an all day six. We were getting towards the end of uh, October, beginning of November. And I was just sitting there like, oh, maybe I should get down. Uh, no, you know what? I'm going to hang out here for a little bit. And I always turn my phone off when I'm in the woods or at least put it on silent. Cause I don't want to be bothered. And I, there was a bird that made a sound that I had never heard before. And I was trying to just figure out what that was. And I was looking around for it. And at that moment I heard the flicker of the wings come up and a small bird comes and lands on my arrow and I just freeze and just watching it. I'm looking at it. He's looking at me and he just sat there and he didn't move for at least a half hour. And that time flew by. And by the time I knew it, it was, you know, three o'clock in the afternoon. And it's just like, if something that simple can make you forget about everything else in the world, that, that is indescribable, that experience and that relationship that you can share with nature. Yeah. Yeah. That's crazy. Anything else? The worst experience I've had, (laughs) well, the worst experience, the worst experience I've had, unfortunately, uh, was at deer camp and, you know, like we were talking about, uh, you know, it threw back a couple beers and at night, you know, everyone's cutting up, having a good time. 
eating great food and one of the best things about deer camp and you know you'll wake up everyone pounds a couple cups of coffee trying to wake up and get out into the woods and sitting there is like oh man you know i'm just i'm just not feeling that great from yesterday i don't know what it is All right, well I'm, I'm gonna hang in there all right I'm, man i'm still not feeling good well maybe i should get down and of course right when you're contemplating things is always when stuff starts to happen so i had a doe <laughs> start walking by me at around 70 yards oh all right well i guess i'm not getting down now and you ever have that feeling in your stomach where you know you got about two minutes to make it somewhere? And it's just like a, like a, <laughs> bloop. yep, bloop. yep, that sound. It's like, oh no. Well, the, the deer started coming in and got to about 60 yards and shotgun hunters. Oh, God, I think I can make that shot. All right. So I pull my scope up waiting for her to take one more step behind the tree. She takes one step. Boom! My gun goes off, and my, my rear end went off at the same time. <laughs> so I, I missed the deer, and I had to waddle myself <laughs> back to the truck and get, get cleaned up. And I haven't told anyone that, but I'm sure if they listen to this podcast, that'll be a new story to, to hear about a deer camp. You know, I'm going to be completely honest with you. I think that is the first, I mean, I've talked about a lot of crazy stuff on this <laughs> podcast, but this is, this is the first time, and I feel comfortable saying this, that a story pops up about a grown man <laughs> pooping his pants. <laughs> oh God, it's something you take pride in not doing, but you know what? <laughs> Sometimes shit just happens. Oh, that's a fact. That's and it did. Oh, it was and it terrible. Did. Oh, it was terrible. So no, of course the whole the whole rest of the trip, all I'm thinking is, oh, now my scent control's ruined, and <laughs> this has just been a terrible day. <laughs> oh, I love stories like that. I mean, I'm just glad it's not me in that story. But hey, yeah. Hey, we all ever we all have our follies. That's for sure. And those are the good stories that get told around deer camp. And you know, some of the, some of the best things that we get to hear about each other is why we keep coming back. And I think that's why the hunter, the hunter brotherhood is so strong because we, we all know that there have been unfortunate things that have happened to all of us. And Absolutely. you just hope it never happens to you someday. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. All right. So, you know, when, when you, <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to make it. I'm trying to make a transition here, but I can't. Oh, it's hopeless. I know, but I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm imagining that scenario play out in my head right now, where you're just like, oh man, there she is. Put the scope up, <laughs> boom, and then your eyes are just wide open because, it, like, shooting the deer was the last of your worries at that point. Oh, oh, for sure. My my next worry was how in the world am I going to explain to the people back at deer camp that I have to go do laundry somewhere. Oh man. I, I Cause prob- everyone's going to start asking questions. Right. I probably would have just taken my pants off and walked back in my overalls. <laughs> Nothing to see here. That probably would have been the, yeah, that would have been the smart thing to do. Right. Right. Okay. So now, <laughs> so, you know, you start, you started, you started to make this transition in, into bow hunting. Right. And, um, what year was that? 
Oh, want to say my first full bow season was 2013. I believe that was the first year I got a full season under my belt. Before then, it had just been, you know, buddies saying, hey, you want to go hunting this weekend? Yeah, I'll go get a tag. But 2013 was the first time I, I fully invested myself into a season. Okay. So what kind of investment are we talking about? Obviously, you know, your buddy gave you a bow. Did you have to go out and buy all the accessories, the arrows, uh, any additional, like, tree stands or gear? Uh, yeah, I had to go out and get most of it. I found a, I found a bow case at the dumpster on my college campus. So that, that was the one thing I didn't have to get. Um, but the one thing I had learned from duck hunting is that if you want to be comfortable and be a good hunter and be able to stay out as long as you can, you have to invest in quality gear to keep you warm. And it doesn't matter. You don't need to be looking cool like people on TV, you need to stay warm. And that, that was probably my biggest investment was the clothing. Gotcha. And if, can you remember how much you spent on that, that first year, that, that initial investment? Oh, geez. Um, probably between arrows and broadheads and all the clothing and the permits, I'd probably say, how at least, three four hundred dollars because okay. if i'm gonna do something i'm gonna do it right 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 but you know college kid doesn't have too much money so you slowly got to build up your rep- repertoire of stuff yeah absolutely all right so you know now now you're transitioning into bow hunting right you kind of made that investment in the gear how did that first year play out for you uh you know it went okay it didn't go how i had you know, how I'd envisioned in my, in my head, you know, I've been doing this for years. I think I got this all under my belt. And the first year was end of October and I had one doe and uh, uh, two yearlings come out and got to within 30 yards of my tree stand. I was like, yes, all right, this is panning out just how I thought it would. I'm in the right place, right time. Scent control is working, pulled up the had her in range shot and flat out missed. And there is no, I don't care if it's the biggest buck of your life or a doe. When you miss an animal, it has a way of just taking the wind out of your sails and making you question what in the world you're doing. Right. Right. So, you know, did did you do a lot of practicing before that hunt or before that moment? Not as much as I should have. I'd like to sit here and think, you know, I, I was shooting a good amount, but I know I wasn't shooting enough. Uh, I was shooting more than the person I was with. They missed a uh, 160-inch deer at 20 yards because they never sight their bow in before season. <laughs> I, I I knew at least to do a little more than that. Oh, boy. All right, so so you missed. Now, what you know, this is a point where, you know, you said it takes the wind out of your sails, but... A lot of people, you know, like myself, when I miss a deer, uh, I go back and I hyper-focus, right, on that shot again, yep. you know, boom, 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 and then do it again and again and again and try to get it down. Did, did you do that or did you kind of just start pouting? Oh, no, I, I got right back at it. I Playing sports, I have a habit of when something goes bad of that just, it eats me up and it gets replayed again and again and again in my head. And the only way I can fix that is to practice enough so that I know there's I'm not going to 
I'm not going to do it again, or at least the chance of it happening is extremely low. So I started shooting as much as I could. I tried to make myself shoot at least five arrows a day while I had the time. Now that I'm a little bit older, life has a way of sucking up your free time, but it was definitely something. No, I got to start shooting again. I got to get better. I I need to really focus on this and make this a non-issue. Gotcha. So fast forward, what, did it become a non-issue? I mean, do you feel that after that, that you know, you, you missed, you went back, you focused, did the work pay off in the long run or did you have another miss? Nope. Uh, I'd say the work paid off the next deer. I, well, the next deer I shot with my bow and arrow was another eight pointer and double lunged him, went hundred and hundred, 120 yards, perfect shot. And, uh, I'm, you know, I won't sit here and naively say that it'll never be an issue. Cause I'm sure the longer I hunt, I'm sure I will miss again. That's just inevitable. But at this point I have the confidence to say I can, I can shoot the deer and harvest it without issue out to about 40 yards. Right. And I'm working to get that further, but I really don't see a point in shooting past that because there's just too much that can happen anyway Right. that you can't control. Right, absolutely. So talk to me a little bit about what you learned that first year of bow hunting. Oh, man. Um, I would definitely say some of the things that I learned is uh, cause I didn't, I spent all that money on my gear, but I didn't really have enough money to spend on trail cameras. I had one or two. So I was really forced to start to work on my woodsmanship, you know, looking for active deer sign, figuring out how fresh it is. If this track is a doe, a buck, uh, That's even a all thing. the way down to, That's a good yeah, thing. I mean, Hey, it's definitely, it's definitely something that I think is getting lost along the way with the the technology overload that is going on in the hunting industry right now. People are just way too reliant on technology. So then, you know, you said you, you made some investments in trail cameras. Did you use those the following year? Yep. Uh, I, I put them out, um, end of September and, you know, it's, it's the new toy that you have. So you want to use it and you tend to put too much faith into your new and latest and greatest stuff. Cause you got it to make you a better hunter, right? So it should make you a better hunter. It should lead you in the right direction. And the problem with that is, is everything has its limitations. So I would put out my trail cameras and I would see, Oh, I have a deer at this stand. Oh, I have three deer at this stand. I'm going to go hunt that well, the pictures are at night or you end up burning out a stand because, well, my trail cameras told me that there are deer at this stand. This is the only stand I'm going to hunt. When, if you would just pay a little more attention on your way in, you could see that there's an active trail 75 yards before it. Right. Okay. So the trail cameras in the beginning sounds to me like they were a hindrance. They, they made you jump into a property. I mean, I used to be the same way, man. I can remember getting, when I first got trail cameras, put them out, check them. Oh my God, there's a huge buck coming through here at 2 a.m. I'm going to go hunt that stand, (laughs) hoping he comes by. That stand's hot. That's where I'm going. (laughs) And that's one thing, like these days, a nocturnal picture to me is almost like not having a picture at all because there's nothing, there's nothing you can do about it. 
No, it's a screensaver on your phone at best because uh, it, it has no relevance. You can't hunt them at that point. I mean, it's nice to know that they're using your farm or going through there, but other than that, it doesn't have a whole lot of importance. Right, right. So any other, any other like those first couple of years of bow hunting, any other learning experiences? Uh, I would definitely say I got a lot better at reading aerials and topo maps because as I was working on those woodsmanship skills, something that occurred to me is of the importance of your scouting and how much scouting can make you a better hunter and make you a smarter hunter. Because during that time, I feel bad. I I think I might have burnt the lady out at home with how much I was hunting because I thought the more I'm in the woods, the better I'm going to do. When in reality, if you scout smarter, you can hunt smarter and you can spend less time in the woods and be more successful. And the topo maps and aerials, you can do a bunch of your scouting at home to narrow down a bunch of areas that you can then go out and check out and be like, yep, I need to be here or nope, cross it off the map on the next spot. And it really can save you a lot of time and make you a better hunter. Right. So would you say that learning how to scout smarter and hunt smarter, I guess, is one of the big takeaways, you know, since you started bow hunting? Definitely. 100%. Um, it, it just, it has a, cause no one wants to get burnt out. <clears throat> you know, you, you start hunting harder thinking you need to be out there and it almost becomes a chore when your alarm goes off in the morning and you lose the enjoyment out of it. It's like, ah, oh, the alarm went off. I got to get up. I got to, I got to go hunting. And you know, when hunting becomes a chore, it, it no longer becomes enjoyable. It starts adding stress to you. And then of course it starts adding stress to your family, which is, is never a good thing. Family should always be number one. And that was a lesson I had to learn the hard way. Yeah. I think we all learned that lesson. And I think for me, uh, you know, my, sometimes my passion for deer hunting, uh, especially bow hunting, uh, kind of gets in the way sometimes. And it, it takes certain reminders every year to say, Hey, your family is very important, which I'll be honest with you. I've had, you know, I have three kids. I have a wife, and that means less time in the woods. So not only does that mm-hmm. for, force me to hunt more efficiently, it forces me, you know, it forces me to stay out of the woods throughout the year. And then, and now what you have is less pressure on a hunting property, and that's a win going into my oh yeah you know to the the real hunting season, which is like the last week of October and the first two weeks of November. Yep. Sometimes the best thing you can do is stay home instead of trying to push it or go in on questionable wins. Sometimes the best thing you can do is give yourself that permission to sleep in and skip the hunt. Yeah. Especially when it's like October 4th. (laughs) Yeah, definitely. So I want to talk, you know, we're running up here on time and, uh, you know, it sounds like we got, I'll have to get you on again, but, um, how did you, go about accessing property Uh, was this proper you know when you start because when you bow hunt it's not like a gun hunt where you got two days three days you go on a gun hunt or a week and you're done when you bow hunt you need a little bit more room because you're going into multiple areas multiple times and um so did you decide were you hunting private property public ground what was the story there I've been fortunate. Uh, the farmer that I do a lot of duck and goose hunting with had just an open timber lot that he usually used for pasture. And 
I asked him if it would be okay to deer hunt because I know he deer hunts it for uh, shotgun season. Oh, yeah, of course, go ahead. And he's allowed me to try and make uh, some improvements. So, you know, this year I got food plots going in. I got bedding going in next year. But with that being said, that property is extremely, it's a very skinny rectangle. So bow hunting it, you need very defined and strong winds to be able to go in there and hunt it safely. So I've been forced to do a lot of public land. And uh, one of the great things about the county that I'm in is the forest preserves and conservation districts will have open lotteries that you can apply for and they will pick a certain amount of people out of them. And then you will get, you know, 50, 75 acres for you and your group to hunt for the season. And so yeah. those have been the two things that I've, I've had to invest heavily in. Okay. And that has that worked out for you? Yeah. Um, last year we one of not me, but, uh, one of the guys in our group took a good buck and a doe off of that property. And that's where, uh, that's where hopefully I can get back on that deer I was telling you about earlier. I named him Houdini because he was, he was always disappearing on me. So I'm hoping I can get back on him this year. You there, Dan? I want to end this podcast with one of the biggest learning moments that you've had in the la- from the very beginning of bow hunting to this this past year what have what has been maybe the biggest learning moment or success or failure or maybe kind of wrap them all into one oh man i would honestly i'd have to say that if you're forcing yourself to hunt to where things start becoming not fun anymore and you're not just out there and enjoying nature because that's what hunting's about is you know getting to go out remove yourself from society forget about your problems and just enjoy being out in the woods and so i'd have to say my biggest lesson is you know giving yourself that permission that you don't have to go hunting you can take a day off you can go spend the time with your family because family is number one And when you're starting to put on extra stress or making people at home unhappy because of the amount that you're gone because you're off chasing deer, it's just not worth it in the end. And then you start adding more and more stress onto you about, I got to go kill that big buck that keeps pulling up on my trail cameras. And it's just, you know, there will, there will always be next season. There will always be more deer, but family is number one and it has to take that precedent in your life. And, if family's not number one and funding isn't and hunting isn't fun anymore, that's when you need to start taking a step back and readjusting your priorities. Have you had to readjust your priorities? I have. Uh, I will say that last year uh, had a little sit down with uh, the lady at home, and I knew she was not happy with how much I had been going because you know, be sitting there on the couch on the weekend and be like, oh, the wind wind shifted out of the. Northwest. I'm, I'm going to go out there this afternoon, and it's and she would look at me with just that face of, really, I haven't seen you in a month and a half. I thought this was our time, and so this year we definitely had the talk, and we've uh, we've come to the uh, agreement that as long as you know there's family time for me and her, then there can be deer hunting time, and I don't see anything wrong with that at all. Do you try to build up brownie points throughout the year, or? Because, I mean, with me, 
I understand that maybe the first week of October is not the best time to go out. Maybe even the second week of October. Hell, maybe even the third week of October. But I I have tried to educate my wife on letting her know that, listen, there's three weeks in the entire year that I, I want to be out in the woods. So, I mean, I try to do nice things for her throughout the rest of the year, but know that when it's time to go, it's time to go. And I go hard because my goal is to take out early so I can make it back to the family as you know fast as humanly possible. But at the same time, you know, and this is where it gets difficult, right? Because in that in that three week window, you know, she's left with the kids. Oh yeah. You know what I mean? Or the two yep. my two week rut vacation, she's left with the kids, and I know how stressful that can be. So yeah, it's it's, uh, it's definitely a balancing act. That's for sure. Oh, you definitely gotta definitely gotta build up the brownie points, and you know it helps. I'm definitely blessed to have a good woman that supports me, and it completely understands that these are the things that make me happy, and is uh, willing to support that. So I'm extremely lucky. Absolutely, absolutely. Well. Nathan, man, I really appreciate you taking time out of your day to come on and chat with us about uh, the road that you've walked uh, for hunting. And uh, I appreciate you coming on. And uh, let me be the first to say good luck this upcoming season. Thank you. Wish you the best and hope you tag out early so you don't have to use up as many brownie points as you need to. There you have it. Huge shout out to Nathan. Huge shout out to all the partners of this podcast. Exodus, Wasp, Lone Wolf, Deer Lab, Prime, Ripcord, Ozonics, and Hunter Safety Systems. Please go out and support those companies because they support this podcast. And when they support this podcast, that means I'm just pumping out more content for you guys. And uh, from the sounds of it, you like it. So go out support those companies also huge shout out to each and every one of you for taking time out of your day to listen to the podcast if you haven't already i need you guys to go out it's mission time go out and like the sportsman's nation podcast network facebook page and instagram Uh, lots of great information coming uh down the pipe through those channels go subscribe to the sportsman's nation vlog like the nine finger chronicles social media pages if you haven't done that already spread the word make sure you guys are listening to every podcast that comes out tell your friends about it spread the word blah 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 if you're gonna be in a tree our friends at hunter safety systems are telling us all please wear your damn safety harness have a good rest of the week